We're continuing today with our series of studies in the Pentateuch. I've referred to it as perusing the Pentateuch. And as I read a book by A.M. Hodgkin, I noted an observation that was made concerning the Pentateuch. I thought this was a really good quotation. The book of Genesis shows man's ruin and failure. Exodus pictures the great redemption and salvation which God has provided. And Leviticus follows naturally, being mainly occupied with the way of access to God in worship and communion. It is a book for a redeemed people. Leviticus shows to us the holiness of God and the utter impossibility of access to him except on the ground of atonement. Such is the main lesson of Leviticus and it is impressed upon us over and over again in a variety of ways. Unquote. In this book, the book of Leviticus, we come face to face with the great question of how sin is to be dealt with. And particularly, we have outlined for us the biblical teaching on sacrifice for sin. Leviticus stands for all time as God's estimate of sin. Sometimes he refers to sin in that way, as sin. Sometimes as transgressions or trespasses. Sometimes he refers to abomination. Sometimes he will use uncleanness or using words that suggest defilement. All of this is God's way of speaking about sin. The book of Leviticus is a book in which God has pointed out for all people in all ages, including our own, his own holiness and the impossibility of sinful men drawing near to him unless their sins have been put away. That's the lesson that we must learn from Leviticus. It's indeed the lesson of the whole Bible. That you cannot come into God's presence with unforgiven sin. In Isaiah 59 verse 2, after telling the people that the Lord's ear is not heavy that it cannot hear, his hand and his arm is not shortened that it cannot save, he did go on to say, but... Your sins and iniquities have separated between you and your God. So he will not hear. You're not in a position of communion with him. When you come to Revelation chapter 21, the very last verse of that chapter tells you that as far as heaven is concerned, naught that defileth shall in any wise enter in. You can't go to heaven with your sins. Sin must be cleansed away. It must be forgiven. This is the lesson of Leviticus. As we look at this book, there are a number of things that we can say about it. And again, as I did with Genesis and as I did with Exodus, I just want to give an overview of the book, if I can. Beginning with the title. The title of Leviticus. You'll notice in that word Leviticus right away, the word Levi. 
That's at the beginning of the, the word, Levi to kiss. Levi is one of the tribes of Israel, one of the sons of Jacob. And it was, of course, the priestly tribe. And we talk about the Levites, who were the priests among the Israelite people. But the title Leviticus comes from the Greek, actually. And it refers to the character of the book as Levitical or priestly. It is a priestly book. It is the book of the priesthood because, as I've indicated, Levi was the priestly tribe. Now the Hebrew title is actually taken from the first words of the book. Turn to Leviticus chapter 1 and you'll see immediately it says, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him. And he called. Uh, really this suggests the connection of the book with what came before. You see the conjunction, and. It's a continuation, therefore, of the history. If you were to say to someone, and such and such, you would expect that there was something you said before that, that connects the two things. And here we have the Hebrew title, and the Lord called unto Moses. This is a continuation of what has come before. Oswald Alice observed that the name is quite appropriate because it serves to remind us of the fact that the book is largely made up of commandments and ordinances given to Moses for the people of Israel. And as you read through, you will see those commandments, you'll see those ordinances, you'll see those divers laws that were given for the direction of the people and the priests. The word called, you see it here in chapter 1 verse 1, the Lord called unto Moses, it is used only here. But about 30 times in the book we read, And the Lord spake, or And the Lord said. 17 chapters of this book in our authorized version begin this way, And the Lord said, or And the Lord spake. God is ministering to His people. But whereas in Exodus... God is speaking from Mount Sinai to give his law. In Leviticus, he's not speaking from the Mount Sinai. He's speaking from the tabernacle. Underlining this great fact that he is present with his people. He's in the midst of his people, right there in the tabernacle, between the cherubim, on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, from there, he's speaking to his people from out of the tabernacle. And you'll see this as you read through Leviticus. The Lord speaking to Moses, for example, from the tabernacle. It underlines his presence with his people. And it teaches them to be holy and to worship him. This is God's concern. We read in our scripture reading, Leviticus chapter 11, part of the chapter at least, and you'll see in verse 44, and again in verse 45, that the Lord says this, Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Ye shall therefore be holy, 
For I am holy. God's concern is for holiness in his people. And I would suggest to you that those two verses are key verses in the book of Leviticus. They really summarize what the book is all about. So there's the title, Leviticus. Let's think about the theme of Leviticus. You might call it the purpose of the book. What is the theme of Leviticus, really? Well, after the covenant with Israel was established in the book of Exodus, it was essential to ensure the maintenance of their relationship with God. See, this is something that we need to think about as the Lord's people in every age. It's not just that the Lord saves you to take you to heaven. Ultimately, that is what he will do. But the Lord saves you to then bring you into relationship with him. The Christian life is exactly that. It's a life to be lived. It's not just a one-time shot. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then nothing else really matters after that. The fact of the matter is, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you continue to believe on Him. You continue to trust in Him. You continue to repent of your sins. You walk with Him. You fellowship with Him. You commune with Him. You maintain your relationship with Him. Think about natural marriage. You don't just say, well, the day we got married, you know, on that particular day, that was it. That was the marriage. No, that was just the commencement of the marriage. That's the commencement of the union that day when you make those vows before God. But then a marriage is something that's worked at, right? That's something that we continue on with. We have a relationship with our spouse. And that's something that has to be cultivated. That's something that has to be worked on all the time. That's the way it is between Christ and his church. Christ is the bridegroom. The the church is the bride. We have a relationship with him. That relationship is to be maintained. That fellowship, that communion is to be maintained. Sometimes in marriages, marriages go bad because there's not a maintenance of that closeness of communion and fellowship and people go apart. We don't want that to happen in our relationship with the Lord Jesus, do we? Now this maintenance of the relationship of Israel with God This was done by means of worship in connection with the tabernacle, that great structure, that tent that was semi-permanent, if you like, that was built and travelled through the wilderness as they travelled. We are thus taught that a soul who is brought into fellowship with God can maintain that communion with God only by means of regular approach to him. That's why we pray. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we come to the house of God. That's why we're under the Word. That's why we read devotional books. That's why we read other kinds of religious literature. We cultivate a relationship with God. And this particular fact gives the book of Leviticus its vital importance in the plan of redemption. The keynote of the book, I say, is holiness. Holiness in its primary meaning of separation. Separation. And that includes both separation from evil and separation 
unto God. Quite often when separation as a doctrine is expounded, men tend to forget this, or at least they don't give it its proper emphasis. In other words, they'll tell you what you need to be separated from, but they don't really emphasize separation unto. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 deals with the unequal yoke. The questions are posed. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And so on. And the Lord says in verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And that's the kind of language that belongs to Leviticus. Not touching the unclean thing. Unclean vessels. Unclean animals. Unclean food. Unclean people, in the case of the leper. Separation. Come out from, be separate from, touch not the unclean thing. But notice the next part. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. See, there's the positive side of separation. It's not separation only from that which is wrong, but separation unto God. Don't we find that in those great words in Hebrews chapter 13, when it speaks about our Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says, Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people, that means to set them apart unto a holy purpose, with his own blood suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him, without the camp, bearing his reproach. You see, separation is not only from, it's unto. Separated unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the use that's made of Leviticus in the New Testament epistle of Hebrews shows to us both its importance as a Bible book, but also its spiritual application and meaning. And I've said before, you ought to read Leviticus with Hebrews and Hebrews with Leviticus. So much is understood by what happens in the book of Hebrews as to what had happened in Leviticus. It has been said actually that Hebrews is a commentary on much of the teaching in Leviticus on sacrifice and priesthood. God shows us In Leviticus, his strict requirement is for the holiness of his people. God demands this. That those who are worshipping him and walking with him be clean. Think of that Old Testament verse, Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. It has particular reference to the priests. But of course we know in the New Testament that all God's people are priests. We're kings and we're priests unto God. We're to be clean. The Lord demands cleanness. Now it's an interesting fact to note that holiness, or a word conveying the thought of being holy, occurs almost 80 times in the book of Leviticus. Surely that is a very prominent theme in the book. A preacher gave an illustration 
of how oftentimes Christians don't have a good enough appreciation of holiness and how to be holy. He said the preacher announced the hymn, We will stand and sing hymn 325, Take Time to Be Holy. We will sing only verses 1 and 4. You see the incongruity of that? The, the minister said, if I'd been sitting with the congregation instead of being on the platform, I might have laughed out loud. Imagine a Christian congregation singing, take time to be holy, and not even taking time to sing the entire song about holiness. He said, if we can't take the time even less than four minutes to sing a song about holiness, we're not very likely to take time to devote ourselves to perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Holiness is what should be uppermost in our minds as Christians. Do you know today what's often preached as the chief end of Christians? Happiness. Happiness. Not holiness. John Piper used a foolish term, Christian hedonism. And talked about man's chief end being the enjoyment of God, which of course is true, but the way that he was articulating it, I don't agree with. This is not our chief end to be happy. Our chief end is to be holy. But by being holy, you will be happy. That's the secret to happiness, true happiness, true joy, holiness. Today you have men preaching that the Lord Jesus Christ is a bit like a band-aid or a bandage or a dressing on a wound. He's there to solve your problems and to carry your burdens. The things that bother you, the Lord will take those and help you with those. Of course, they don't want the Lord to control their lives and to change their character. God didn't say to the people of Israel here in Leviticus 11, Be happy. He said, Be holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Jonathan Edwards said that the beauty of holiness, or true moral good, is the greatest and most important thing in the world. Do we look upon holiness as the most important thing? in the world. Hebrews 12:14 says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. When I was a teenager, one of the first theological books I read was entitled Holiness by Bishop J.C. Ryle. I remember being about halfway through that book and I didn't I didn't know if I was saved or not. Such was the challenge that it brought to my soul. I mean, it shone the searchlight upon my heart. Holiness. God demands it. Yes, the Lord wants us to be happy. Of course He does. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord, the psalmist said. There's no doubt about that. But true happiness begins where? It begins with holiness. 
If you're not holy, you're not going to be happy. Simple as that. Jesus said in the Beatitude, Blessed, oh the happiness is of they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's what the word blessed means. Oh the happiness is of. The great C.H. Spurgeon said this, If I had my choice of all the blessings that I can conceive of, I would choose perfect conformity to the Lord Jesus, or in one word, holiness. Holiness. Now the book of Leviticus is all about that. And it tells us, as New Testament believers, how to appreciate holiness, and how to actually appropriate it into our everyday lives. The word holy is actually used 91 times in Leviticus. Words connected with cleansing are used 71 times. And references to uncleanness, including the many references here in chapter number 11 that we read, the references to uncleanness are 128. Think of that. Holy, 91 times. Words connected with cleansing, 71 times. References to uncleanness, 128 times. Can we not agree that this book is about holiness? These words were not written only for priests and Levites in ancient Israel. The spiritual principles that you find in the book of Leviticus apply to Christians in every age, including our own. Now these key verses, Be ye holy, for I am holy, are taken by the Apostle Peter and applied to New Testament Christians. Turn with me to 1 Peter, the chapter 1, and read from verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 1, from verse 14. Peter is obviously referring to the book of Leviticus. As obedient children not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. In other words, the way it was before you were saved. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And that refers to manner of life. Because it is written. And here's the quotation from Leviticus 11. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Notice, it's a command. It's not advice. It's a command. God says you're to be holy. It's a remarkable fact that the book of Leviticus itself is quoted or referred to over 100 times in the New Testament. That may surprise you. Over 100 times. And that scripture is profitable to us to use in developing Holiness, godly lives. Holiness is something that is demanded of us because we serve a holy God. The emphasis on the Bible is on holiness, the holiness of God, and not on the love of God. Now sometimes you would think that was not the case when you listen to some sermons and you sing some popular religious songs 
You think that the great emphasis of the Bible is on the love of God. I'm not saying that it's not emphasized. But it's the holiness of God. Theologian Augustus Strong said, Love is central in God, but holiness is central in love. Holiness is central in love. 1 John 1.5 tells us, God is light. How often do you hear people, preachers even, quoting, God is love? You hear that all the time, don't you? 1 John 4 verse 8 and verse 16, God is love. Yes, it's true. But before you even get to that, in the first chapter of 1 John, verse 1 and verse 5, it says, God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. In other words, God is holy. Love without holiness, it has been said, would be a monstrous thing that could destroy God's perfect law, while holiness without love would leave no hope for the lost sinner. Both are perfectly Balanced in the divine nature and works of God. Light and love. Holiness. Now the Hebrew word for holy that Moses uses as the human penman in Leviticus. Literally means that which is set apart and marked off. Or that which is different. Now think about that. That which is set apart and marked off. Or that which is different you know the Bible talks about the Holy Sabbath that's a, that's a phrase that's used the Holy Sabbath you'll see that in Exodus 16.23 but why was it the Holy Sabbath because the Sabbath God set apart for his people he marked it off he put a fence around it that's what we should do it's a different day it's not the same as other days It's not a day to do your shopping. It's not a day to wash your car and cut and mow your lawn and do all those odd jobs about the house that you didn't get a chance to do the rest of the week. That is not what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is set apart. It's a day that is marked off by God. It's a holy day, not a holiday. A holy day. Think about the priests. They're described as holy. Leviticus chapter 21 deals with that in verses 7 and 8. Why were the priests called holy? Because they were set apart to minister unto the Lord. That's their job. That's what they were to do. They were set apart, sanctified for that purpose. Their garments were holy. And those garments could not be duplicated for common use. According to Exodus 28 verse 2. Again when you read about tithing in Leviticus chapter 27 verse 30. The tithe or the tenth part that the people brought to the Lord was referred to as holy. The holy tithe. Anything that God said was holy had to be treated differently from the common things of life. In the Hebrew camp. Something is holy. It's set apart. It's sacrosanct. And we learn from Deuteronomy 23.14. That the camp of Israel itself was holy. Because the Lord dwelt there with his people. 
Now, in our English language, the old English word halig, which means to be whole or to be healthy, is where we get the word holy from. Isn't that a great thought? To be holy is to be healthy spiritually. To be whole spiritually. In other words, what health is to the body, holiness is to the soul. And there's a a related word, sanctify. You read that word throughout your Bible. It comes from the Latin sanctus, which means literally consecrated or sacred or blameless. And we use the word sanctification to describe the process in a believer's life of growing to become more like the Savior. And we use the word holy to describe the result of that process. Holiness is the outcome of sanctification. Very important for us to understand that holiness is what God demands in his people. Let's think then about the truths in Leviticus. There are certain truths in Leviticus that are brought before us. When we do an analysis of a book of the Bible, we can divide it up in various ways. But there are two main divisions of the book of Leviticus I want to suggest to you that can help you to analyze the contents of the book. Number one, the way of approach to God. And number two, the way of abiding with God. It's very simple. The way of approach to God, that's chapters 1 through 16. It includes that wonderful 16th chapter that deals with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and all that happened on that occasion. The way of approach to God, it's through sacrifice. And the main thought in this part of the book is mediation. We talk about a mediator. A mediator is somebody that comes between two parties that are aggrieved. You you have two people in business life that can't come to a common agreement on something. It has to go to arbitration or it has to go to mediation. Someone comes who takes the two parties and deals with their concerns and tries to come to a a consensus. That would happen as well in marriage counselling, if a couple are having major difficulties and there's a third party comes in as a mediator to try to bring the two together. The main thought in Leviticus chapters 1 through 16 is mediation. And all of the divine instructions about the offerings in the first seven chapters and the priests, etc., they culminate in the great day of atonement, chapter 16. The way of approach to God. And obviously today we don't come to God the way that is outlined there in terms of the various offerings, trespass offering and burnt offering and so on. These all belong to that Old Testament economy, but they pointed forward to Christ. And they speak to us of the way of approach to God that we enjoy, which is through sacrifice, which is through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. But then there's the second part of Leviticus. And the great truth here is the way of abiding with God. The Lord Jesus talked about this in John chapter 15, about abiding in Him. Well, that's the theme from chapter 17 to chapter 27, the second part of the book. 
And the main thought here is not mediation, it's consecration. Consecration. And all the various elements of the ritual emphasize this thought. Consecration. Israel was taught how to draw near to God. And what was inconsistent with that attitude and how, when they were brought near, the blessings and benefits of such a position could be maintained and manifested. Now if you wanted a more detailed analysis of Leviticus, you could consider it under four main headings or main divisions. There's the laws of the offerings. There's the laws of the priesthood. There are the laws of purity. And there are the laws of the festivals. But let me divide those up. The laws of the offerings, you'll find those in chapters 1 through 7. You have listed there five offerings. You may recall not so long ago in our services here, we dealt with the sacrifices, the offerings in Leviticus, and sought to explain how they applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. But those five offerings, as I would judge them to be, indicate that the means of approach to God is sacrifice. Sacrifice. And isn't that a truth that's taught in the Bible right from the beginning? When there was sin, there was a requirement for sacrifice. When our first parents needed to be clothed, they were clothed with animal skins. God killed the animals to clothe them. The thought of sacrifice and the need for sacrifice must have been taught to Cain and Abel. How did they know to come with these offerings? Cain didn't bring the right thing. He didn't bring it with the right attitude. Abel brought the right offering. But the very fact that they were bringing offerings sacrifices to the Lord indicates that the means of approach to God have been taught to them. It's sacrifice. And that's something that continues through the Old Testament. Then it culminates in the great sacrifice of Christ. And when you look at the laws of the offerings, chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus, those five offerings have a chief thought in them, which is propitiation. Now I know propitiation is a big word. But it's used in the Bible. It's used in your English Bible a number of times. You think about the mercy seat. Literally, it means the propitiatory. It's a place where blood was shed and blood was applied in order to turn away wrath, to turn away anger. And so you find it here in Romans 3. From verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. And the word that's translated propitiation there is translated in Hebrews 9 verse 5 as mercy seat. Or the propitiatory It was a place where the blood would be applied in order to turn away the wrath of God. Propitiation is what our Lord Jesus Christ has rendered 
The laws of the offerings speak of this. And then there's the laws of the priesthood from chapters 8 to 10 of Leviticus. This section of the book teaches us that the instrument of approach to God is the priesthood. Obviously the priesthood was involved in the offering of sacrifice. And when you come to the New Testament, you'll discover that our Lord Jesus Christ is both the priest and the sacrifice. Because he offered himself without spot to God for our sins. But the main thought here is mediation. And I mentioned this already about a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Mary is not the mediatrix. The saints are not mediators. Christ alone is the mediator between God and men. The laws of the priesthood. But then there are the laws of purity. And we read some of that this morning in chapter 11. But that continues right through to chapter 22. Chapters 11 to 22 deal with the laws of purity. Those chapters show us that the condition of approach to God is purity. Holiness, or if you like, the thought given prominence is separation. And by the way, chapters 11 through 15 give the requirements in preparation for the day of atonement, which happened in chapter 16. And then in chapters 17 to 22, the subject is continued by showing the separated life in various aspects. How they were to live that was different. And that section has been aptly divided into the following. The physical man, chapters 11 to 15. The spiritual man, chapters 16 and 17. And the moral man, chapters 18 to 22. I'll repeat those. The physical man, chapter 11 to chapter 15. The spiritual man, chapters 16 and 17. And the moral man, chapters 18 through to 22. Then finally there are the laws of the festivals. You read about various feasts. The feasts of the Lord uh, from chapter 23. But through to chapter 27, the end of Leviticus, you have the various laws connected with these festivals. And these provide the occasions of approach to God in those various festivals. They're referred to as the feasts of the Lord. And we haven't time to deal with this today. But if you look at chapter 23, you'll find there the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You'll see the Lord's Passover. You'll see the Feast of Harvest. Uh, You'll see even the Day of Atonement. There are various feasts of the Lord or festivals. And there were laws connected with those And as I say, these provide the occasions of approach to God in the various festivals. But the uppermost thought here is consecration. Consecration. And that's indicated by the theme of praise that you find there. And we can view the the entire book of Leviticus in these four sections as number one, the ritual of the holy altar, number two, the ritual 
of the holy persons. Number three, the ritual of the holy place. And number four, the ritual of the holy periods. The ritual of the holy altar. This has to do with sacrifice. Again, emphasizing, as the whole Bible does, the fact that you can only come to God on the ground of an atonement. Many people don't seem to understand that. They think they can just come to God as they are, without any work having been done, without any removal of sin. There's a need for sacrifice. That's outlined in the ritual of the holy altar. Then there's the ritual of the holy persons. It deals with service. Those who serve the Lord in the priesthood. They have their counterparts in New Testament believers. You go to Revelation chapter 1 and discover that we are priests and we're kings unto God. We're referred to as a kingdom of priests by Peter. And we offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. I mentioned thirdly the ritual of the holy place. Again, the emphasis on separation. It comes up time and time and time again. You cannot read Leviticus without thinking about the doctrine of separation. How important it is. Separation from uncleanness. You know, you take the laws concerning the leper. If someone had the slightest little spot on his hand, and it was examined and found to be the beginning of leprosy, that person had to leave the camp of Israel. That person had to be banished from the camp. And whenever they would go around any place, they would have their mouth, the, the top lip covered. Sometimes they would ring a bell to warn that they had leprosy and they would have to cry aloud, unclean, unclean. That's what sin has done to us. It's rendered us leprous, needing to be cleansed. And then there's the ritual of the holy periods, sanctification. And this teaching is brought out throughout the book of Leviticus, the need for this sanctifying work of the Lord in our lives. So may God help us as we read the book of Leviticus, as we would study it together. We may return to look at some of it in a future message, but I trust that what we've meditated upon today will be a blessing to our hearts.